Hi everyone, welcome to Black to Nature. I'm Professor Stephanie Dunning and I'm your host. So it's been a minute since I dropped an episode. It's been kind of busy and I think that I just really needed a lot of time to process what this episode is about. This episode is titled Free the Land, Free the People and it's about a trip I took this summer the summer of 2021, to six national parks. I made this decision to go and visit a bunch of... Actually, what happened was I made a decision to go to Yellowstone. And an acquaintance of mine decided to kind of tag along and suggested that we stop at national parks on the way to Yellowstone. So I ended up going to six national parks. So I feel like I have a pretty good grasp of the national park situation. And that is what this episode is about. This episode is about national parks, about land, and about the indigenous people of Turtle Island, or North America, as it's called by others. So I'm going to be talking to two colleagues of mine from Miami University, Roxanne Ornalis and Sandy Garner, both people who are deeply committed to indigenous issues and indigenous social justice and whose work also concerns questions of indigenous rights, history, and the environment. So that's what we'll be talking about today. And as usual, I have lots to say with my own observations and insights about the national parks and their relationship to histories of conquest and the history of displacing indigenous people's rights. Once we were in our own country and we were seldom hungry. For then the two-leggeds and the four-leggeds lived together like relatives. But the Americans came, and they have made little islands for us, and other little islands for the four-leggeds, and always these islands are becoming smaller. Black Elk Roxanne Ornelas is Associate Professor of Geography at Miami University. Her research focuses on the geographies of indigenous people with an emphasis on the protection of their sacred lands, indigenous women, and environmental leadership, public policy, environmental justice, and human rights. Thanks for being on the show, Roxanne. Thank you for inviting me. Most people think that the war against indigenous people ended. But when you go out west, what's clear is that that's not true. It's not it's over. It's an ongoing war. In fact, they're in a uh, fight for their lives out there right now. And, you know, I can just point to different places. Um, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, um, the um, the forest system around uh, White Earth Indian Reservation in uh, Minnesota. Uh, those are their territory 
And so now they're trying to stop um, the Enbridge Line 3 from coming through their uh, reservation and uh, potentially crossing through the Mississippi River watershed all the way to Superior Lake Superior. And um, if you know anything about the Anishinaabe and the Ojibwe who live up in that part of the country, uh, one of their staple foods, it's a ceremonial food, it's a food, it's a very important part of the culture, is wild rice. And those wild rice um, beds there is where they harvest that food. Uh, the wild rice uh, in Ojibwe, Menomen, they're right now fighting for their lives up there, uh, trying to protect the water, trying to protect the rice. And we don't hear about these things unless there's someone like me who's posting it on social media. Other than that, have we heard anything about the water protectors who have been walking for the past two weeks all the way to North Dakota following that line that's being cut from North Dakota into Minnesota? No, we, don't, we just don't hear about it. So we don't see any of the larger news stations picking it up, the newspapers, we don't see it in the uh, the Times, you name it, any uh, large uh, newspaper. There is a way that the media is being controlled in that they're being arrested right now in Minnesota. So that's one way to stop the story from getting out is to arrest the journalists. Same thing happening at the XL Keystone Pipeline where journalists were arrested. And, uh, and that is a big problem that people don't know that it's going on. You know, I teach a class on uh, indigenous peoples and their sacred lands. And you know, first week in, into the class, students are saying, well, why don't I know anything about this? Right. I've, I had one student who was a graduating senior one year who took the class and he came to my office hours one day and he told me, he said, I am so angry. I'm so angry that here I am graduating from college this semester, and I have never heard this history. I've never learned this history. It was like the indigenous people suddenly just disappeared. And, um, and I'll ask students, how many of you have studied indigenous history, at least in the Americas anyway? Maybe one student will say, well, you know, around Thanksgiving we have we dressed up in costumes as you know, pilgrims and <laughs> Indians when we were kids. But other than that, we didn't do anything. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz in An Indigenous People's History of the United States writes, quote, Had North America been a wilderness, undeveloped, without roads, and uncultivated, it might still be so, for the European colonists could not have survived. They appropriated what had already been created by indigenous civilizations. They stole already cultivated farmland and the corn, vegetables, tobacco, and other crops domesticated over centuries, took control of the deer parks that had been cleared and maintained by indigenous communities, used existing roads and water routes in order to move armies to conquer and relied on captured indigenous people to identify the locations of water, oyster beds, and medicinal herbs, end quote. 
This knowledge of indigenous civilization is what Western history chooses to suppress in order to justify land theft and genocide. So, you know, when we have that, a lack of education, there's a huge hole there that we have to try to cross in order to try to fill in what is missing so that we have an understanding for these people, our fellow citizens who are here, they're alive. I've had students say, oh, I thought Indians were dead. They thought they were part of the past. No, there are over you know, 500 tribes in the United States. It's right. just, yeah, it's eye-opening and mind-blowing to many of them. And certainly in the state of Ohio, all the indigenous people are narrativized as being ancient narrative people, right? Like the Hopewell uh, people and yeah. stuff like that. That's that's all you get in terms of like, if you go to Serpent Mound or something, that's all you get about Ohio's indigenous people as if right. there weren't indigenous people who were displaced, right? I was inspired to make this episode of Black to Nature because of a trip I took this summer where I visited six national parks. It isn't that I have a fetish for national parks, but I felt a call to Yellowstone. And this is kind of a thing with me that I feel called to places. Most of the places that I have been, I have gone there because just out of the blue, without prompting, a thought will occur to me, like I should go to Zanzibar, or I should go to Paris, or I should go to New York City. And for the past two years, I felt a tug westward to Montana, actually. My first thought was that I would go to the Glacier National Park, but it was a little too far for the time that I had. You have to go pretty far north to get there. So instead, I decided to go to Yellowstone. And someone suggested that I stop at other national parks along the way. And so this ended up kind of being a small tour of Midwestern and Western national parks. And I came away with a lot of notions about this country and what it has done to the indigenous people and what it means that the national parks exist. I had many, many thoughts about the history of the national parks. And one of the things that I became somewhat obsessed with on my trip was finding out what these places were called before this land was colonized by Europeans. What I learned from moving through, like moving from there to like Bear Lodge, to Devil's Tower or Bear Lodge, and then out to Yellowstone, where even Yellowstone is renamed, right? It's, I mean, it wasn't originally called Yellowstone. And even going down into like Grand Tetons, right? Where you know, Grand Tetons means like big tits. Like, I mean, you know, that's like just so disrespectful. I don't speak French fluently, so <laughs> maybe it's not disrespectful. Grand Teton, maybe it has some other whatever. But like when I Googled it, because I was reading about like, what were the, what were all of the indigenous names of these places? That's mm -hmm. what I wanted to know. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, so then I came across the history of how the Grand Tetons got its name. And I just thought, that's some disrespectful ass shit right there. And it seemed to me like from Mount Rushmore to not renaming Bear Lodge to 
you know, the Little Bighorn Battlefield, which is run by the National Park Service, by it's a national monument. So when you pay to go in there, you're paying the U.S. government to go in there. Many Americans know the battle at the Little Bighorn Battlefield as Custer's Last Stand. But this was a battle that the indigenous people where they triumphed over the instigations of the U.S. cavalry and the U.S. government. This is a site of indigenous victory. Today there is a monument at the Little Bighorn Battlefield, or as it is known to the Lakota and other Plains Indians, the Battle of the Greasy Grass. There's a monument to this triumph by the indigenous people over the colonizing U.S. government. And you can visit it. And I went there. I felt very still while I was there. Something inside of me couldn't speak. I was thinking about what today would be like if all the battles had gone that way. It was impossible for me to stand in the space of that battlefield and not feel the sacredness of it. You know, the other thing about it is that I felt that the history is so close, it's so recent, you know? Um, in the same way, like when we talk about how slavery wasn't that long ago, this wasn't that long ago either. Yeah. I mean, it is, and you know, if you consider these, uh, battles, if you will, that are going on around the country uh, with indigenous peoples trying to protect uh, their lands. Yes. And the health of the environment on their lands. Um, it's not over. It's right. still not over. And, um, you know, beginning in 1492, it's been a constant battle for life. And what, what, here's, here's another thing that really that really, I don't know how much of this I'll put on the podcast because this is like an endless complaint on my part. Do you get, we get to Yellowstone, Badlands was a little bit crowded, but it's such an unforgiving landscape that there are people. Oh, wow. Isn't it a farm. trip? It's very trippy. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's like being on the moon or something. It is. Yeah. People don't really get out of their car. You know, they just kind of um, drive by and look at the formations and kind of keep going. Although we did, we did a 10 mile hike in there. Um, wow. Then we, from from Badlands, we then went to Wind Cave, which is gorgeous and beautiful and like the Garden of Eden. Like it, it looks like a fairy tale landscape. Like, you know, on the prairie, there was this billowy pink grass stuff. Oh, there were all the prairie so, I love it out there. And it was just, and, and the sound of the wind through the wind, through the caves was such a, poignant sound I mean it was it was really it was really amazing but then you get to Yellowstone man and it is the Disney World of National Parks like it was <laughs> and you know I I feel like you know in light of everything you've said about this ongoing battle of indigenous people to protect the environment and to protect the land that they do have stewardship over at this point 
And then you have people on, we have motorcycle gangs. I'm not against motorcycles. We have motorcycles, but I'm just saying you've got these motorcycle gangs, people with these huge freaking RVs and everything, endless lines. It takes an hour to get into Yellowstone on any given day if you don't wow. go before four o'clock in the afternoon. And then there's this grand loop around the park. People just kind of drive to look at wildlife and whatnot. And I couldn't help but feel like, I know that some of these people in this line, if not the majority, don't give a crap about nature. Like, they, so there's a weird, I can say I went here. I can say I went there. It becomes like an extension of like US imperialism. It just becomes- Oh yeah. Right, like the whole national park thing is like, it's something I'm doing as an American. Like as an American, I can go to these spaces as like a tourist, which have been set aside and taken away from it. It's just, it, it's it's part of the whole violation of of indigenous people. Criticizing the formation of the national parks might seem counterproductive in a society that already doesn't value nature. But we've been asked to focus on the beauty of these places while ignoring the blood that was spilled and still is to encircle them, to make them little islands, as Black Elk said. The national parks let Americans pretend to care about the environment while obscuring the ways that the creation of the parks is an act against both the people and the land. As David Truer writes in his piece, Return the National Parks to the Tribes in the Atlantic, quote, the national parks are sometimes called America's best idea, and there is much to recommend them. They are indeed awesome places, worthy of reverence and preservation, as Native Americans like me would be the first to tell you. But all of them were founded on land that was once ours, and many were created only after we were removed forcibly, sometimes by an invading army, and other times by a treaty we'd signed under duress." End quote. Yeah, you make a, a really good point about how you, know, you get all these people, it's like uh, nature Disneyland or something, and these people are driving around this loop, just saying, okay, yes, I saw elk, I saw a bear, and then they take off. And those are also the kind of people maybe who don't really care about nature or understand nature who will stop and have a picnic and leave their trash. Yes. It is like one of the worst things that I have experienced while out in wilderness is finding trash. How can you go and appreciate nature and leave behind cigarette butts and cans and candy wrappers and you name it? That is not a nature lover. Right. That's someone um, who's going to Disneyland. Yeah. They're not there to be at one with nature, to be in that spirit of that nature, to listen, to, to smell, to look at the sky and to just be there, what is it that makes it so beautiful? In her piece, Managing the Sacred Lands of Native America, Roxanne, the Roxanne that I'm talking to on this podcast episode, writes, quote, by listening to the voices of the many elders and spiritual leaders who have spoken out at the meetings I have attended over the years, 
I have had exceptional opportunities to learn firsthand of the depth of concern for and the critical importance of Native American sacred lands and their significance in the lives and well-being of indigenous people. I have come to understand the essence of the power that sacred lands hold by actually walking or sleeping on those lands known to be sacred. By trying to experience the sacredness of a place, I have gained a greater understanding and allowed myself to consider the possibility that there is something more there. And based on my personal experience, I can state with certainty that there is an inexplicable energy present in those sacred lands I have visited. The quality is not something that should require any more proof or explanation by tribes if they believe that those sacred lands exist. In general, most people accept the fact that churches, synagogues, and mosques are sacred places for those who practice their religions and spirituality in them. We accept that they hold special meaning. We do not ask for proof. So why then do we continue to press for proof from indigenous peoples regarding the management and protection of their sacred lands? Are not those sacred lands the equivalent of churches, synagogues, and mosques? End quote. I was astonished at how aggressive the state is in uh, making sure that it communicates at every turn that it wants to disenfranchise indigenous people from the land. The violation of the people and nature. You know, when you think of trying to push a pipeline of heavy tarsal that's coming from a, a tar sands of oil coming from Canada into Minnesota and White Earth Indian Reservation. What is going on here? There is no sense of nature in that grand plan. Who's sitting up there in uh, Alberta, Canada, drawing out the potential route? I just love seeing these maps because I look at them all the time. I show them in class. The potential pipeline, it has to go through the reservation somehow mm -hmm. and um, because the non-native uh, citizens don't want it going near their towns anywhere so the only way to figure it out uh let's see i guess we'll just go through this reservation and not care that these people are concerned that it is sacred to them part of their spiritual practice that each step is a prayer, especially with the water protectors, when they're walking these waterways and communicating with the water, that's what it's all about. Each step that they take is a prayer for the water. They're in communication with the water and with the nature around that water. Well, you know, I think it is it is so foreign, you know, and I, I talk about this in Black to Nature that for Europeans starting, you know, during the Enlightenment, and I don't know, maybe before, but that's when I begin my timeline. You know, nature is 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 the first other. Mm -hmm. I agree with you there. You know, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Somehow we are elevated above nature. You know, one of the things that has occurred in recent years that there are interfaith groups that are working together to um, 
sort of re-examine the Bible or the Quran and the Torah and to, to look at those early stories. If God created the earth and gave we humans dominion over the earth, then it is the greatest gift from God. And it requires our caretaking. It is not to be exploited. It is to be cared for and protected as the greatest gift. Yes. The struggle for indigenous land rights has broad implications for the environment. This struggle is both historical and ongoing. The triumph of settler colonialism, despite how things may seem, is not a foregone conclusion. You know, like how can you go to the the Little Bighorn battlefield and not know that indigenous people from day one have been resisting this colonial project and continue to resist this colonial project to this day? That is ongoing. That is apparent. It is very. I mean, so for me, like I was, I would see these landscapes, like I would see Wind Cave, you know, beauty of the place would then, you know, I would experience that and then I would immediately experience it like a wound mm. because I because I know it's not in the hands of the people that it should be. And what really burns me about it too is this. Many people conceptualize the National Park Service as a structure that protects the environment. Mm -hmm. And it's so- themselves that way. Yes. And that they're also described, they describe how indigenous peoples and cultures are recognized. It's right. laughable. And it's also, it's also like utterly kind of bananas that these places, all of these, this entire country actually was nurtured and stewarded wisely by the indigenous people until the uh, Europeans arrived and took over, in which case they immediately began to, to environmentally decimate the land. So how is it possible that we actually think that the U.S. government is a better steward of the environment than the indigenous people? And we see it playing out right now. Look out west, what's happening? It's on fire. Yes. It's because the quote unquote management of the parks and the forests it's not happening mm -hmm. the way it used to take place um, with indigenous yeah. peoples. You know, they recognize the importance of fire because it clears the lands and then it also allows for certain seeds to, yes. to uh, like say pine trees and stuff. They need fire. Yes. An article by Carrie Norgard and Sarah Worrell in the conversation quotes Dr. Frank K. Lake, a Kaduk descendant and U.S. Forest Service research ecologist. He explains, quote, the Kaduk tribe, among others, sees fire as medicine and as such views traditional burning as a human service for ecosystems. Places where fire has been excluded are sick, as are the people who live there from a tribal perspective. Eventually, those places then get too much fire, i.e. catastrophic wildfire, like an overdose, end quote. Yeah, I, I think that 
you know, when you were describing earlier about, you know, this idea of nature from, say, the East Coast, I grew, let's say I grow up in Manhattan. What do I know about the uh, Yellowstone yeah. Park, National Park? And so it's something that's over there. It's like nature is over there. It's out there. And um, we don't, well, some people don't have a relationship with it. I had a student was speaking of Manhattan. One time I was teaching um, an environmental, an intro environmental course. And one of the things that I did was first week of class, we'd go out, I'd say, okay, we're all going out into, into Bishop Woods before they did and made it what it is now, park benches and sidewalks instead of the trees, the wild trees that were out there. And so I'd have the class, we'd all go outside. I'll say, like, okay, now I want all of you to hug a tree and have some communication with it. So I had some botany students, they're like, yeah, they go running and they throw themselves on the tree and wrap their legs and arms around the tree. And then I had this one student, she was, was looking at me wide eyed and she said, Dr. O, I don't do nature. I grew up in Manhattan. We just don't do nature. <laughs> so what about Central Park? I don't know. And so I said, well, tell you what, why don't you just go over there and stand by the tree, just kind of get a sense for the environment, touch it, you know, feel the tree, feel the power of the tree that's rooted there, reaching up into the sky. And she's like, yeah, right. So semester goes on. And a lot of the students did hug them. And so the semester goes on and she later sent me an email and she said, Dr. O, I want you to know that I hugged a tree this weekend and it felt good. Just a matter of just opening minds to the possibilities that there is this relationship with something that is alive. You know, there are several nations that are working on the rights of nature and actually writing the rights of nature into their um, their constitutions. And um, when I think of the indigenous peoples and the, the rights that they claim would help to recognize their human rights, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Okay, so September 13th, 2007, the UN voted on the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. That declaration took 30 years. I mean, there's a whole story behind it, which I could tell you at some point. But in that declaration, there are 46 articles. And in that 46 articles are very important words that stand out. Free, prior and informed consent. Yeah. And that means to anything that might disrupt their lives, like say what's happening up at White Earth Indian Reservation right now. Were they informed? Were yeah. they invited into a public consultation process to give feedback? Yeah. Was it even considered what their uh, cultural, their life ways, heck, their, their mental health? with dealing with the stress of this pipeline coming into their homes. That is one of the things that we have to recognize right off the top, is that there has to be communication, free, prior, and informed consent before anything happens at all. 
in her piece, Managing the Sacred Lands of Native America, Roxanne writes, quote, I have listened to hundreds of stories from elders and others in public meetings about the need to protect their sacred lands in the United States. It appears that nothing has changed much in the past decade. Is it ignorance or entrenched racism that continues to hinder progress? Is it greed for the natural resources that beckon or simply a complete lack of consideration for the human rights of indigenous people? After all, most large populations of indigenous peoples in the United States are out of sight and out of the minds of most Americans. So why should we care about them? Some may think that there are more important concerns like the slowly recovering global economy and the continuing wars in the Middle East. Even so, I made a promise to an elder indigenous grandmother some years ago, now deceased, who asked me to, quote, tell them about us, end quote. And it is through this telling that I aspire to bring greater understanding of and attention to the many different ways of viewing the world that policymakers need to consider and envision in order to develop a broader scheme of environmental justice in their policy and decision-making processes. A mountain may just be a mountain to some, but that mountain may be a place of reverence and prayer to others. It is time to move beyond business as usual and to forego what divides us by opening up ourselves to the possibility of more, so much more. To grandmother, I told them, and I will continue to tell them about you." End quote. Standing at the top of one of the steep Indiana dunes, the city of Chicago glitters like a half-tarnished dime in the distance. Jutting out into Lake Michigan, I can see it from the sandy hill, a steel pimple on the horizon. I think of something I've read in Charles Eastman's book, From Deep Woods to Civilization. Upon arriving in Chicago for the first time, he comments that, quote, I realized vividly that the day of the Indian had passed forever, end quote. It always struck me that upon seeing that city, the overwhelming metropolis of Chicago, that Eastman's sense of loss is so profound. This makes me think about a quote from Jared Sexton from the Vell of Slavery. He writes, quote, Beyond the restoration of a lost commons through radical redistribution, everything for everyone, there is the unimaginable loss of that all too imaginable loss itself, nothing for no one. If the indigenous relation to the land precedes and exceeds any regime of property, then the slave's inhabitation of the earth precedes and exceeds any prior relation to the land, landlessness, and selflessness is the correlate. No ground for identity, no ground to stand on. Everyone has a claim to everything until no one has a claim to anything. No claim. This is not a politics of despair brought about by a failure to lament a loss because it is not rooted in the hope of winning. The flesh of the earth demands it, the landless inhabitation of selfless existence. Standing in a national park, a state park, or the national forest that surrounds almost all national parks, staring at the city across the oceanic Lake Michigan, I can't help but think about how both the quote-unquote preserved status of the national park and the city represent equal displacements of indigenous people. I could not shake the feeling for this entire trip that I was witnessing the consequence of a crime so significant and ongoing that it should be all we talk about when we talk about the national parks. At the same time, in the context of a Western society 
Justice seems like restoration of what was lost. But what was lost can never be restored, since history cannot be undone. The only way forward is, to use an Ellisonian phrase, to plunge outside of history, which means undoing regimes of property and self. I contend in my book that nature as a symbol and metaphor in the text I discuss helpfully reveals a need for the kind of landlessness and selflessness Sexton calls for by problematizing attempts to restore a lost commons. Yet imbricated in that process and in that recognition is a reckoning with a history and with the violation that indigenous people have suffered under settler colonialism. Well, thank you for coming and talking to me about your work and sharing your, your insights and your wisdom with me and with the audience. I really appreciate it. And thank you for having me. So the parks that I visited on my uh, cross-country national park tour were the Indiana Dunes, Badlands National Park, Wind Cave National Park, Yellowstone National Park, and the Rocky Mountain National Park. Oh, and the Grand Tetons, I almost forgot. At almost every site we stayed at um, KOAs, or Campgrounds of America. So for this Black to Nature camp book, I am going to talk about the KOA franchise and the Campgrounds of America. And hopefully this one episode can kind of cover KOA's largely writ. So KOA, or Campgrounds of America, was founded in 1962. And what's important to know about KOA's is that they're franchises. So if you Google KOA, uh, you might come across an article about some Black people who had a bad experience at a KOA. And so the reason that can happen is because they're privately owned. They're part of the KOA family, but each individual KOA will be different for a couple of reasons. One reason each KOA is different is because there are different levels of KOAs. So there's KOA journeys. And KOA journeys are places that don't have a ton of amenities, but they're just the kind of places you stay overnight because they aren't by a tourist attraction. So they don't have some of the amenities that the other KOAs have that I'm going to talk about in a second. We stayed at a KOA journey in Rochester, Minnesota, and it was a great KOA. There, we had no problems there. Like all KOAs, it had a bathroom that was an indoor bathroom. It wasn't a vault toilet with showers. It also had a laundry room. So it has a lot of the sort of creature comforts that can transition a person into camping who hasn't camped before. The other thing to know about KOAs is that they have three levels of lodging that you can pay for. The lowest level is tent camping, which is what I do. So tent camping is obviously the cheapest, depends on the site. It can range anywhere from $25 a night to $66 a night, depending upon where the campground is. So 
the campground that we stayed at in Rochester, Minnesota wasn't that expensive. It was about 30 bucks a night. But the campground that we stayed at, the KOA, where we stayed in Estes Park, Colorado, which is a swankier location, was $66 a night. So uh, these are some of the things to know when you're booking a, a camping stay at a campground of America. In addition to tent camping, the KOA campgrounds also offer cabins that you can rent and they offer RV spaces for people with trailers and recreational vehicles who uh, bring them and hook them up to electricity and to water. So those are the three different kinds of lodging situations that you will find at a KOA. The next level uh, of campground through the KOA franchise is the KOA holiday. So the KOA holiday uh, is going to be the kind of place that is usually close to a tourist attraction. So the KOA holiday will be near uh, Bear Lodge or near Mount Rushmore uh, or near Yellowstone. So these will have more things kind of going on. So we stayed at a KOA holiday near Bear Lodge slash Devil's Tower in Wyoming. And they had a movie night. They had a pretty big store with ice cream and food and like a small kind of deli restaurant situation going on. And they have activities for the kids. And usually they have bigger cabins, more luxurious cabins and more bathrooms and maybe even more than one laundry room. So the KOA holidays are going to have just a lot more amenities and be a little bit fancier. Um, and then the last level of KOA is the KOA resort. And some of these even have golf courses on them. We did not stay at any KOA resorts on this trip. So I would recommend the Campgrounds of America as a good place to camp. Um, because generally speaking, uh, franchises, uh, people who are participating in a franchise system do not want to have their license yanked by the parent company. And so they're incentivized to treat everyone well. And I had no negative experiences at any of the KOA campgrounds that we visited. Now, um, when we stayed in Jackson Hole, there we did not stay at the KOA in Jackson Hole, but we stayed at a campground that used to be a KOA, and the KOA parent company revoked the franchise license of this campground because they did not keep the campground up to the standards of the KOAs. So because of this, if you go to a KOA and you have a bad experience, it is totally worth your time to complain about it to corporate and to bring as much media attention to it because the KOA parent company doesn't want that bad press. So I recommend Campgrounds of America as a good transitional place to stay if you're new to camping and if you feel, um, if, you, if you have any fears about being a black person or a person of color camping. We saw quite a few uh, people of color and I saw quite a few black people at the various different campgrounds that I went to. The other good thing about the KOA campgrounds is that most of them, especially the KOA holidays, have bathrooms that are uh, gender neutral and they also have um, locks on the doors. So many of them had individual gender neutral bathrooms 
where you had to enter a code to get into the bathroom. And once you were in the bathroom, you could lock the door from the inside. So you're able to take a shower and use the bathroom in a completely private setting. Um, and many of these uh, individual gender neutral secure bathrooms also had ramps for wheelchairs. So this is the other reason that I recommend Campgrounds of America. You can check out what amenities each one has online before you book, which allows you to really customize your camping experience. What's not so great about some of the places we visited was the lack of cultural sensitivity. There were a few places out west that had teepees, fake teepees, in the campground that you could rent to camp in. So the Campground of America franchise system is somewhat of a mixed bag. It provides you with some protections as a consumer, but some of the uh, cultural environment is dependent upon the ethos and the politics of the individual owners. So overall, I give Campgrounds of America a good rating. I had good experiences there, even though I was disappointed by the cultural ethos of some of the campgrounds that we visited. I would suggest if you're going to go to a Campground of America that you go to the website of the campground you're thinking about going to and interrogate it and check it out thoroughly and look at all of their pictures before you make the decision to go. But overall, I would recommend Campgrounds of America. On part two of Free the Land, Free the People, I talked to my colleague, Sandy Garner, about the indigenous people of South Dakota and issues related to national parks and land rights. Thank you for listening to Black to Nature, the podcast. Until next time, keep on blooming.